Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The U.S. spends $4 trillion a year on health care, devoting more of its economy to this one sector than any other country, and with mixed outcomes. The COVID pandemic has accelerated the adoption of telemedicine and spawned major investments in testing, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, moving hundreds of billions of dollars to new frontiers within less than a year. There's still plenty of waste, but also a feeling that new opportunities now abound. Silicon Valley and Wall Street are on the scene. We talk to a physician slash investor and a healthcare investment banker about the landscape. Now, please grab a magazine and this clipboard and wait for your name to be called. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salman and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Catch our shows with the Robbins School of Business. More at Robbins.Richmond.edu. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from Northern Virginia and the D.C. area is Dr. Bijan Salahizadeh. He's founding partner of Navamed Capital. It's a private equity firm specializing in healthcare. Dr. Salahizadeh has been doing venture capital and private equity investing in this space for almost 20 years. He originally trained as a physician. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Robin. Thank you for having me on the show. It's great to finally have you on. And I think what forced our hand this year is I uh, shared with you that that statistic, I think a back of the envelope thing shared by Professor Scott Galloway on the Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher, a tremendous amount of disruption, obviously, in healthcare over the past, you know, 16 months or so, let's say, that that covers COVID and everything else. But telehealth, telehealth is now universal. You hear all these ads on podcasts for remote counseling. I mean, did you guys ever plan for, let's call it an exogenous shock, like like a pandemic like this happening? Never. Uh, who did, right? I mean, I think the beauty of this, and if there are s- silver linings in the clouds of COVID, Telehealth has been one of them. It has been a kick in the rear end of the healthcare system in terms of seeing patients where they are. And I think we've discovered, doctors have discovered, the system has discovered that maybe up to a third, maybe more of the visits that we viewed sacred as being inside the four walls of a physician's office don't probably need to occur in those four walls. And that's been really because of this pandemic. And I think it's just been a remarkable change um, in a system that has historically been slow to adopt changes. It's not like the technology was new. It's not like the interest of patients was new, but it took a pandemic to make that happen. You know, I'm going to quote from the Wall Street Journal in this uh, late March piece, what COVID-19 taught us about telemedicine. Uh, As you said, the COVID-19 pandemic created the perfect test lab for telemedicine. By some estimates, 20 to 25% of all care in the future could be delivered remotely. At Stanford Healthcare in Palo Alto, even as practices have resumed in-person appointments, 
30 to 40% of all visits are still virtual. About a third of new patient visits are using telemedicine and close to 75% of patients who completed a video visit report that they are very likely or extremely likely to choose a video consult over an in-person visit, according to its chief medical information officer. Tell us why that's significant. Is it from a you know quality of care or, or you know U.S. healthcare costs are notoriously out of whack with outcomes that this helps tamp down costs and maybe even helps outcomes to the extent that people are more willing to check in with a doctor over Zoom? I think that to me is the real opportunity. Uh, um, and I think the real opportunity is for people with chronic conditions, the, the monitoring visits, if you have heart failure or uh, pulmonary disease, the, the chronic visits you need to go see your doctor for every three months, every six months, every year, the visits that patients miss in the bricks and mortar world. And they don't miss it because they want to. They miss it because transport is difficult. Travel is difficult. Things get in the way. Uh, weather gets in the way. And to be able to do that with technology remotely, I think could really improve the outcomes. Now, that has to be proven with studies, but I think the potential is there for that to be proven. And look, every other facet of our lives, we have figured out how to do things remotely. The pandemic, again, has helped that. But we've, you know, as we all know, healthcare tends to be behind in its adop- adoption of technology. And I think the beauty of this pandemic is that it's shown that it doesn't have to be that way. I think there are things that telemedicine visits should not apply for. For example, cancer screenings, you need to see the physician in person. That's, that, I think, is generally accepted. And so they need to. there are some things where you need to be examined by a doctor or a nurse. Sure. They need to feel you and touch you. And those are, I think, we're, we're really figuring out what those things are. But in areas like behavioral and mental health counseling, easy that those need to be done uh, and can be done increasingly a majority of those visits by tele. Is there a certain fatigue, though, that's added to that? I mean, both from a doctor's perspective and just like you talk to any uh, elementary school student who's sick of being on Zoom school, that there isn't this essence of humanity and a soul and a kind of a whites of the eye connection in telemedicine. I know it's not perfect, but to the extent that it gets people in front of doctors one way or another, is I mean, I mean, is your thinking that you know even two out of three ain't bad? Yeah, and I think look, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd establish the relationship with your care provider, your doctor, or your nurse, or your nurse practitioner within an in-person visit or visits first, and then when there are other chronic ongoing things that are appropriate, you would see them. But the idea of Zoom fatigue is real, and I think it's real for all of us who've been living in this pandemic, who don't practice as physicians just in the business world. And I think it's also going to become real for doctors and nurses who have to do hour in and hour out of, of Zoom visits and, and maybe to some degree for the patients themselves. So I think we're, we're sort of feeling it out. I also think there's going to be a little bit of a bounce back. So um, we've, we've just lived a year or 14 months of very high utilization of telehealth. And I think it's going to sort of sure. renormalize. I heard other stats that said a large insurer uh, said 0.3% of all their visits were telemedicine prior to the pandemic. It went up to 35% during the pandemic, and it's running about 10 to 12% now from one of the large national insurers. So there's that sort of uh, reaction over reaction. So seize on that concept. In the, uh, in the kind of the fog of war, the emergency of the pandemic, where it was both the mental health crisis and pediatricians and others, and I, I remember talking to a pediatrician last April saying that we're not even sure if we're going to get reimbursed in full for telehealth visits, but we have an obligation, you know, a Socratic obligation to go out and do it. Were the insurers being 
okay with full reimbursement because it was an emergency situation? Is it your impression that telehealth will continue to be reimbursed at full? You have honed in on the key question in American healthcare. We can talk about all the good, the different things that are implied by different things like telehealth. And at the end of the day, it comes down to how is it going to be paid for? Now, during the public health emergency, the, the laws that Congress passed enabled full equivalent payment for telehealth visits during this public health emergency. When the public health emergency expires, there is a very active dialogue going on in Congress and with the regulators of how they're going to pay for it. And there is one set of constituents that say a telehealth visit in the future when we're past this emergency stage ought to be reimbursed exactly the same as a bricks and mortar visit. Of course, you would imagine most doctors would want that. And there are others who are saying, I think some legislators are saying, why should that be? There's no bricks and mortar. It's less expensive on a marginal basis. And so as always, it comes down to these questions and Congress having to find what's called pay-fors. And that is very unresolved. And, and the resolution of that, in my mind, will dictate the embrace of the physician community post-pandemic around video and virtual visits. It is a very open live question right now that I think there is a lot of pressure on Congress to get resolved. And as usual, it's coming down to the partisan fight of who wants to pay for what. How do you as a physician, as an investor, as a public health wonk and a family man look at mental health? Is it a parallel epidemic in this country? Does it get talked about a lot? Because it seems to get you know secondary billing literally by the health insurers that it's I, I guess it's a it's a it's a conundrum if people suddenly discover the importance of their health care, their mental health, and want to see their doctors more for that. The insurance companies are are loath to reimburse that because it's it's borderline elective, is it not? It's not supposed to be. There are mental health parity acts and laws that have been passed over the past decade. The reality of the situation on the ground, whether you are someone of means with good employer insurance or someone with less means on Medicaid, the program for the poor. Access to mental health is quite challenged, much more challenged in the Medicaid population than commercial, but challenged for all of us. And it's because mental health spent the last 50 years, frankly, being the backwater of healthcare in terms of the executives that were drawn to it, the kinds of capital that was drawn to it, both public and private. It's only really been in the last decade where it's emerged. And I think that's that emergence has been because the societal acceptance of mental health being equivalent to physical health in the United States has really started to change. We talk about these things now, I think, in a way that even 10 or 15 years ago, I don't think we talked about things like depression and suicidality in the way we do now. We have a long way to go. There is a massive undersupply of psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists. And the sort of the boots on the ground question comes down to how well do we pay for those services? In this day and age, you know, mental health professionals are some of the lowest paid physicians. And so when a student coming out of medical school is making the marginal decision on what residency program they're going to go into, dermatology is a bright, shiny object, as are many other procedure-based specialties where you poke and prod at patients, because in our current healthcare system, we make more money for more, more pokes and prods. And we value, mm -hmm. our Medicare and Medicaid system value a mental health visit at a much lower per minute reimbursement to the doctor uh, uh, and to the provider than we do for any other kind of visit. And so it's not a surprise that fewer people go into that profession and we have workforce problems and it's this self-perpetuating issue. And so the nice thing about the pandemic is we've enabled a different way to access uh, mental health, which is so it's opened up the aperture, 
but it hasn't solved the root problem, which is we don't have enough people providing that care and we don't pay enough for it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Dr. Bijan Salahizadeh. He is managing director at Navimed Capital. It's a healthcare-focused private equity firm. He spent several years in a variety of healthcare operational roles at publicly traded and growth companies. I have to ask you, to what extent are you and the fellow partners and the investing community writ large in healthcare discounting or, or realizing that, let's say, single, pay, single payer is an inevitability, if it's not in five years, then in 15 years? This is the classic debate in the investor community as to will it happen? Will there be single payer? And how should we think about it? Um, I think the political reality, this is my opinion, of single payer is quite challenged in this country. We can barely agree between parties at the Affordable Care. I think we've just settled that the Affordable Care Act is here to stay. Ten years later, the Rasputin of, 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 of health care law has finally been accepted by both parties. Repeal and replace, I think, just disappeared from the lexicon within the last 18 months. So I think we're a long ways off. That having been said, prior to each national election, I sense a trepidation amongst the investor community, the venture capital, private equity community in healthcare of saying, oh, God, what if there's single payer? Um, and what, when, what will that mean if a certain candidate is going to be the nominee of a party? Um, we, don't, we don't generally underwrite that into what we're thinking about um, because I think the political reality of getting the requisite votes to get to that place are f- so far away in the United States. I think the things that could happen would be lowering the age of Medicare to being into younger and younger populations, so down to 60 and 55. And look, Biden campaigned on that. Um, I don't think that's going to happen in, in, in this administration, but he did campaign on it. So I think there are ways to get to more government coverage of health care that are short of the, quote, single payer sort of slogan that was certainly uh, rampant in terms of discussions a year and two ago. Doctor, talk to me about some of the, uh, the the milestones, the mile markers of the past two years in, let's say, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I know it gets thrown around a lot. A, a lot of press releases go out with whimsical claims that are backed not ultimately by much. But I remember reading, for example, in Israel and in Greece and in Italy, that by detecting early detection of wastewater treatment was able to predict with a high degree of certainty where you would see waves of COVID flare-ups within two weeks. I was reading a couple of weeks ago about AI-backed uh, colonoscopies, that oftentimes when a, a GI doing a traditional colonoscopy is missing precancerous polyps, that machine backing of that could, could catch some other harder-to-catch lesions. They've tried it over thousands and thousands of simulations. How much does this excite you? How much of it is happening versus how much of it is just talk? I think, um, as in all things with technology, we probably are overvaluing the impact in the short term and undervaluing the impact in the long term of these massive changes in AI and machine learning as applied to healthcare. Healthcare is always the slowest adopter of new technologies and often for good reason. Whenever you put a new technology like AI in a patient-facing or decision support setting, there's lots of things you need to think about in terms of the accuracy of that algorithm or the accuracy of that technology. And that having been said, I love the role of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and just generally compute power applied to what I call physician assist. That is, I think, how it's going to happen first. Things like colonoscopy, things like other diagnostic imaging where the physician has an assist. I I liken it to the adaptive cruise control or what Elon Musk's version of it is. He calls it full self-driving. It's not that. It's just cruise control that's a little bit more robust. That is the assistive driver. It is not driving for you. Um, for the most part, 
And I think that's the same way this kind of technology is going to be applied to healthcare. And also, let's not forget the administrative behemoth of healthcare in the United States. A huge percentage of our costs is just dealing with the billing and back office of this Byzantium system we have of how things are paid for. And the, the application of AI and ML, sadly or not sadly, depending on your perspective, might first come in the back office processes of how to do billing correctly, which would be sort of a somewhat ironic twist if it was not applied to patient care first, but how to maximize payment for the right person at the right time. But it is often where sometimes technology is first applied in the healthcare system and probably could reduce the person load of people that have to touch each claim each time you see a, uh, you know, a provider sees a patient. I mean, you must be a, a smartphone fanboy. I, I see the stuff that you tweet out. Why is it that, you know, I remember having to take my father to the ER in 1992 and as a, as a, as a teenager who barely knew how to drive a car and everything and fill out these papers and these authorizations. Why in this day and age, if, if you agree to it, can't you just have a thumbprint recognition at various doctor's offices and the like, just the same way your iPhone or your, your MacBook picks up these things to kind of pick up your, your patient history and, and other things? I know they're HIPAA and privacy considerations, but how is it still such an analog administrative universe, whether I go into my dentist's office, whether you go in for a, a GI visit? or a, a, a new visit with a primary care physician? Why does it have to be that way? I think it's, it's, there, there, there's an um, inertia that's built into healthcare around the adoption of technology. And look, healthcare is the only sector I can think of in the economy where the federal government had to pay the providers, the doctors, to install electronic record keeping or electronic medical records. This was back in the stimulus of, of 2009. And so um, I can't think of another industry where the government, the taxpayer had to pay the provider to implement electronic record keeping. We certainly don't do that for our manufacturing companies. We don't do that for our retail stores. We don't pay for their cash registers as taxpayers. And yet we have to do it in healthcare. Now, there was a reason to do that. We wanted a, a common adoption of pipes. Now, the pipes themselves that were laid down sometimes don't speak well to each other. And the government's been trying to sort of work on that over the past decade. But the mentality is, if you don't pay me to do it, I'm not going to do it. And, and I, in some sense, I don't blame the physician community and the hospitals because they say, well, they've done it once before, uh, and if they don't mandate it, I don't need to do it. And paper worked really darn well for 50 years. The reality of our healthcare system, Robin, is that it is not geared towards the consumer. Our healthcare system is a business-to-business -business enterprise where you happen to be as a patient or your father um, part of the substrate, but that the real business is between the provider hospital um, uh, you know, entity and the insurer or your employer who's paying for that care. And we just happen to be the thing in the middle. And therefore, every time we ask, why aren't these consumer things that we're so used to when we go to our bank adopted, we need to think about where there is technology adopted, it's to, it's to enable and lubricate the payment system. That's where it happens first. Wow. Uh... <laughs> I mean that's a sobering that's a sobering thing. I think that with every you know uh, consecutive visit to a primary care physician, it looks like they're trying to automate the process more and more, both from a billing or cancellation perspective, but even blood test results. Like at the very least, back in the day, doctor, I would get the call from the doctor, even the two minute thing saying that you're at this with blood lipid profile and with blood sugar and everything. Now you'd be lucky to get a call from a physician's assistant or uh, receptionist at the practice, that they're all looking to automate it. It's taking away the human touch. I think it, I think it can, and there are ways in the future that will ad adapt those technologies to, quote, feel more human. But the other reality is that our primary care providers 
We, I mentioned how we pay so little for mental health. We pay almost as little for primary care. And, and those primary care providers are seeing average patient visits of seven to 10 minutes. And they literally don't have the time in this day and age. And we have not fully crossed over into the, the technology being as good. And so we're in this no man's land, maybe for another decade or two, until we can sort of cross the chasm over into the technology feeling like it's, it's at least holding your hand and giving you that result in the way you want to receive it around health information. And as I argued once with a very famous venture capitalist of Node Kosla, who went on the record eight, 10 years ago, and, and he said, 80% of physicians will be replaced by a computer algorithm one day. And I said, well, that's not probably the case. I Look, I trained as a physician and I'm biased and I'm as tech forward as they come. But at the end of the day, when a relative is sick, you know, when a friend is in the hospital, the, the hand that a physician and nurse has, that phone call, that visit, that's sitting in the room with you, to me, that's irreplaceable. And we've just got to figure out as a society how we pay for that, but also pay for it in a, within the context of everything else we need to pay for in the healthcare system. Well, to what extent are the bells and whistles of kind of Fitbit type technology and the successive, you know, Apple watches and everything helping with real-time monitoring of entire populations like sample sizes? I don't know to what extent it can help us with monitoring blood sugar or, or other issues. How exciting are, are some of the developments you see over the next few years in wearables? I think there's so much we can do with wearables. I think the first generation of wearables was just the accelerometer, just measuring your footsteps. We have scratched the surface. We're at the very tip of the iceberg of what can be done with next generation sensor technology to track your blood sugars continuously. Other parts of your, of your blood to see what is happening in your body. Now, of course, with all that information comes the liability of who's tracking it, who's doing what with that information, where is that information going? Is it actionable for your health? So a lot of science is going to have to be done to follow the advancements in sensor technology, but there is no doubt in my mind for those of us, and I include myself, with metabolic disease and family histories of heart disease and diabetes that these new sensors that are you know, going to be coming out in the next several years can be game changers if we can integrate them into the population and individual health and be more predictive on an individual level of people who are at high risk for things like heart disease, even at younger and younger ages, so we can make those lifestyle changes. I don't think we're there yet, and we certainly haven't figured out how to pay for those things. We still have a system today that is oriented towards that it would rather and only knows how to pay for your heart surgery, does not know how to pay for your Fitbit or your equivalent sensor to prevent that heart surgery or even your nutritional counseling, just doesn't have the sense of how to do that. And that is the change that needs to happen in order to sort of round out all the new excitement in sensor tracking and population health. Dr. Salahizadeh, what are coming out of this pandemic, hopefully you know, we're on the, the, the tail end of, of this awful calamity with nearly 600,000 deaths in a bit more than a year. But we were really blindsided when it came to reliable testing. Uh, and then once people just realized that that was that and they were hoping for a vaccine, uh, there are other uh, restaurants that were caught flat-footed that we didn't know about ventilation technologies. A lot of it is is science versus uh, you know salesmen coming in and pitching things like UV lamps. Is this a whole new growth area and that the entire world population has been chased into the fact that pandemics can and do happen, and you have to make investments in public health technology? I really, really hope that's right. And yet human nature says that after an emergency, we remember it pretty well for some half-life, three, five, seven years, and then 
the successive generations start to forget or the successive era starts to forget. I hope that's not the case because this pandemic, certainly in the US, but also in most of the world has shown that we were flat-footed. We didn't have the capacity to ramp up our testing and other critical infrastructure, even just sequencing the variants until every step of the way we, we have been a step behind. And I hope that the requisite investment is not just made as a bolus for the next couple of years, but in an ongoing way in, in the public health infrastructure. That is really the test to see, you know, to me, of whether societies and governments are advanced in their thinking and will remain true to this mission. Sadly, human nature says that will not be the case. Doctor, are we truly on the brink of, of reliable genetic testing slash forecasting? Say you, when you take a child for his or her boosters, you know, in preschool, they could take a saliva test or a cheek swab or a small blood test and, and give you with certain degrees of certainty the propensities toward, you know, metabolic disease or certain cancers in the family. Uh, a, a lot of that is being advertised right now with the genetic testing companies, but we don't know for example, when a, a company says, send us a, a saliva sample and we can custom tailor a diet to your metabolic predisposition. I mean, is that is that in the offing reliably in the future? I think it's coming. Um, and I think it's, it's it, you know, there was a lot of promise around this in the original era of the Human Genome Project back 20 years ago. And a lot of it became unfulfilled because the science didn't support it. But now, 20 years later, an exponential growth in scientific knowledge of what we can do with genetics and genomics, I really do think that we are approaching an era where we can not entirely predict, but much more accurately predict your risk for getting things like heart disease and cancer at a very young age. And the question to me will become how we handle that information. There's a lot of ethical questions, how we convey that information to children, when, what we do with it, medically, how we handle that in the medical record, and how that's treated vis-a-vis -vis healthcare insurance and life insurance. Really big questions around these technologies that, you know, if history is a guide, the technology will get there long before the, the sort of ethical and legal questions are resolved. But I think the technology is coming. There are tests you can do today that are quite reliable out of places like Mass General that can tell you with very good accuracy your lifetime risk of coronary artery disease or, or dropping dead of heart failure. Wow. Um, and cancer tests are coming where they might be part of your annual checkup, companies like Grail, where part of your annual checkup, you'll get a pan-cancer screen to see if you have any cancer in your system long before you have symptoms. So this is, we're within just a few years of this. I have to ask you in, in, in closing, and you were excellent, and I hope you come back again, but this is, this is a hot seat question. I find whenever I'm interviewing tech people, uh, certain Silicon Valley types, lately they've become very breathless about metformin, kind of the first stop diabetic thing for people with high A1C and everything. And th there's a school of thought out there that we should all be taking metformin and statins preemptively, even if you know we're in great shape and we're marathon runners, because there's this new school of extend your life. You know We're on the brink of breaking 100 years life expectancy. Do you subscribe to any of that? Are you the kind of person who would advocate like crushing uh, metformin into your morning coffee with your statin. And this is just half jokingly, but it's talking about a lot of the off-label uses for some of these things that are being looked at as wonder drugs. Yeah, look, I think um, anytime something is advertised as a wonder drug, it rarely is. And I think the, exu <laughs> the exuberance of my colleagues in Silicon Valley around some of these things often has, has come before the science. That having been said, statins are incredibly safe. Metformin has a 60-year use history. 
of being safe. Now, I don't advocate using these things off-label, but I think, to me, the awareness of metabolic disease at earlier and earlier times, the best thing you can do is lifestyle changes. But for some of us who have family histories, those lifestyle changes, no matter how well we eat and how much we exercise, we can't dent the genetics of the reality of the genetic situation. And that, to me, is where these these therapies, these drugs have real utilization. There is a school of thought in Silicon Valley that says we should crush it and put it in our orange juice and and uh, and, and mainline metformin. Um, I hope the science will support that in the future. I've obviously been an advocate of that science getting there. And I think what you're pointing out is that like many things in our society, Silicon Valley sometimes leads the way, sometimes leads the way maybe, and I lived out there for 15 years doing investments. And so I, I have many friends in that community Silicon Valley leads the way, and then and then sort of the scientific enterprise sometimes catches up, and and the truth is somewhere in the middle. So I should I shouldn't necessarily transfuse the blood of an eighteen year old into my blood every two weeks. I, I wouldn't advocate it without talking to your doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to Doctor Bijan Salehzad. Originally trained as a physician, MD, MBA. He's a venture capitalist, private equity investor. For almost 20 years, he's now a, a founding partner at Navimed Capital, which is a private equity shop specializing in healthcare. Sir, I appreciate it, and please do come back on. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you're just joining us, we are talking about uh, the newfound disruption in healthcare and healthcare uh, technology in the wake of COVID-19. Uh, joining us right now from Boston is Sam Hendler. He is a managing director at the investment bank Harris Williams, where he leads the firm's healthcare IT practice. I do have to say in the spirit of full disclosure, Sam Hendler is a friend. In fact, I was a groomsman at his wedding uh, a good decade and a half ago, but that is also the genesis of where we've had conversations that have led to this interview. So welcome, sir. How are you? Very well, Robin. Good to, uh, good to hear your voice and uh, look forward to catching up in person soon. Yeah, well, I'm haunted by a conversation we had when we back when we were doing lunch meetings. I think it was sometime in mid 2019 where you told me you believed that healthcare was going to be something like the next oil or the next OPEC. And indeed, you know, the United States is already spending four trillion dollars a year on healthcare. All sorts of new areas of opportunity. Uh, what with waste reduction, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, pandemic testing, pandemic preparedness telemedicine. What is front and center for you? Yeah, Robin, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I, you're right. I think what I, what I said to you is I think healthcare and specifically healthcare IT will be the oil of the 21st century in terms mm -hmm. of it is the single most pressing challenge to our economy and our country. And, and at the same time presents one of the greatest wealth creation opportunities uh, we may ever see. You know, when, when we take a step back and think about healthcare and healthcare IT, it's a $500 billion global industry just selling technology into the healthcare market. But often think about it as really, in some ways, the world's largest cottage industry, right? There are lots of different pockets of the market and of the sector, and it's, and it's incredibly complex and nuanced. Ultimately, when you're talking about where does healthcare IT go and what what's the promise of it? It's it's exactly what you identified, which is you know our spending and I'll be U.S. specific here on healthcare as a percentage of GDP is already astronomical relative to any other country in the world, and is continuing to grow. 
And the only way we're going to be able to fundamentally change the sort of, I guess, the inflection of that curve um, is to better leverage technology to enable the industry to deliver better clinical outcomes, reduce the cost of delivering those outcomes, engage patients, and at the same time, keep providers satisfied in their job, right? We talk about that as kind of the quadruple aim Mm. of, of healthcare IT. You know, and I saw this stat really on the eve of the pandemic back in March of 2020. I'm sure it would be updated. If anything, the number would be even higher now. But this is from Standard & Poor's Global was citing a report from March of 2000 by the Health Policy Journal Health Affairs saying that U.S. healthcare spending is projected to grow by an annual average of about 5.5% between 2019 and 2028 to $6.2 trillion by 2028. Obviously, that outpaces GDP. Obviously, it must be very vexing to analytics-minded and efficiency-minded people and operations-minded people. How much of that number goes into administration and friction? It is unbelievable. The stat you frequently hear quoted is that it's estimated up to a third of spending in healthcare is attributable to fraud, waste, or abuse, which is obviously, when you you talk about, (laughs) obviously, a huge frictional cost and an already unsustainable cost. trajectory uh, that's that's a massive consideration and again when i when we take a step back and think about how do you impact that look at if you look across different markets and different sectors of the economy and what they spend on technology as a percentage of their output you'll see sectors like banking and manufacturing and media spend 17 18% of their of their economic output on technology to improve efficiency healthcare spends about 5% so let me ask you first, we, as we asked Bijan Salahizadeh, who is both a physician and an investor, he's been a venture and private equity investor in this space, is there any part of you that's modeling for a single payer system that would come in and one of the biggest pluses of it has been for all the disruption wrought, it would clobber administrative expenses, it would clobber marketing expenses? You know, Robin, I, I'll actually challenge that thesis on, on two fronts. One, and it, it's a question we always address and think about with our clients. But in many respects, the U.S. does operate as not a formal single-payer system, but but certainly a a reference single-payer system in that, first of all, the government is the single largest payer by a massive factor for commercial for claims. And most commercial plans use the CMS pricing and clinical guidelines as a way to set their own policies. So it's a little bit of a misnomer to suggest that we we don't already operate under, if not an, a formal single-payer system, at least in some respects, a de facto one. You talk about de facto. I can be at a CVS filling a prescription that's very widely used out there, uh, you know, flooded in the generic market with options. And the pharmacist herself would tell me to look at the GoodRx card, kind of in a wink-wink way. Isn't this, isn't this bizarre? Like in travel, Sam, you know, you can go to Hotwire, you can know you could go to Kayak. There's some transparency of pricing, but anyone who walks into a CVS, anyone who walks in a hospital for a procedure, you know, is, is oftentimes paying a very vastly different price from the person who just had it before him. No, and, and Robin, the, the both the the inconsistency and the opacity of what different things cost in healthcare are, to your point, create a huge amount of, of friction. And challenge. I don't know that that necessarily gets solved in a single payer system, 
uh, per se, but you're right. You've identified absolutely a, a a massive challenge, and that's and that's where and you've seen lots of different innovative technology models try to emerge uh, to to address it. Again, when you take a step back and think about what we as consumers experience of the healthcare system, right, one of the biggest challenges is now so many more people in the United States are are paying such a such a higher percentage of their own healthcare costs than they ever have before. Right? We've seen this massive shift towards high deductible health plans. Right? And now 55% of the population with commercial insurance through an employer, you know, have, have a deductible that's greater than a thousand dollars. And for, for a number of uh, individuals, that, that's, that's just an overwhelming financial burden. And what that, what that's doing in terms of how that's influencing people's health behaviors or behaviors that impact their health outcomes is is something the healthcare ecosystem is really grappling with. Outside of efficiency, Sam, I want to know the kind of stuff that in the wake of the pandemic gets you excited to go and meet with a prospect or to take pitch books in or to take meetings. I mean, what kinds of technologies are at the forefront? We spoke about telemedicine. There's sure. a tremendous amount of enthusiasm in recent years over genetic testing and predictive, uh, you know, anticipatory diagnostics with uh, it could be cancer in the family or metabolic disease. What are the things right now that, you know, excite you to get on a plane and, and try to acquire or merge or recapitalize? Yeah, well, well Robin, I, I would say literally anything would excite me to get on a plane at this point after over <laughs> a year in my house. But uh, yeah, and and you and you've uh, and you know some of my grades from college, so you, you know I'm not getting deep into any of the uh, science, the, the deeply scientific stuff. But I hear you. Well, but when when I, when I take a step back and think about what are the trends that really excite us and thematically, <gasps> what what are we seeing really resonate with people in the market? It's kind of it's there are a few themes. One. It's this growing consumerization of healthcare, right? Partly for exactly the reasons we just talked about. We all have a much greater financial stake in our health than we ever did, and that's not going anywhere. Um, and at the same time, is when you have that increased financial uh, agency, sure, sure. Uh, you have an expectation around uh, your experience in a very different way. At the same time, we always like to say, you know, you as a patient, as a consumer, have absolutely no basis on on how to judge the quality of clinical care you receive. All you can do is judge the quality of your experience. Was it easy to book an appointment? Could I text with the doctor if that's how I preferred to engage with them? Was I able to get my see my results online if that's what I prefer? And ultimately, I think there's going to be a massive wave of investments. Uh, of investment around tools that help providers differentiate themselves on the quality of the patient experience, recognizing that again, individuals can't judge the judge the quality of the clinical experience. What so like a Yelp? Good. A Yelp for outcomes? Well, is it, is it even out? Again, outcomes are a really hard thing to judge. Clinical outcomes are a very hard thing to judge. And you and I can both go to a restaurant and come away with a, yeah, that was a pretty good meal. That wasn't a pretty good meal, but. We can, I think, be more consistently aligned on what was the quality of the experience. Mm -hmm. So if you and I both go in to get our knees replaced, you and I might have very different clinical outcomes through no fault of the care team, right? Because I, you, you do your rehab and I don't do mine. Right, right. But what we can do is talk about 
gosh, it was, I was able to schedule it for when I wanted. They were able to follow up with me electronically in a, in a way that clicks for my personality and level of technological engagement. And by the way, that's going to be very different for, you know, for how they should engage with you versus how they should engage with one of our parents. Well, how widely can we apply telemedicine? Obviously, it's it's really this past year with pediatric mental health, with mental health in general, you've just seen an explosion of of uh, adoption of, you know, this is a, a true crisis. It's a parallel pandemic in the country. And people are now seeing their therapists over Zoom. And that's something that out of necessity that was done. It was a time of high anxiety and high consternation. How to, to what extent can you scale the telemedicine opportunity? For example, would a would a median a dermatologist or, or or patient with a curious mole be comfortable having it looked at remotely? You know, I, I think in some in some ways you absolutely can there are lots of aspects of of healthcare that you can disintermediate through telehealth or traditional delivery models. You know, we as a country kind of went through 10 years of telehealth adoption in about 10 weeks mm. back in Q2 of last year. And to your point, I did actually see a dermatologist via telehealth. And the quality of cameras and technology and bandwidth has now improved to such an extent that you can, in many respects, uh, diagnose a, a large number of conditions using technology. Now, look, there's certain things that you know, no no one's doing surgery over over an iPad anytime soon. Yeah, like a USB <laughs> scalpel. I was wondering, like a do-it-yourself <laughs> kit, like a Cologuard. But I mean, at what at what point? I mean, are you pushing on too much of the responsibility? There's a convenience factor, and look, we love. Everybody universally wants to get more people in front of their doctors, especially for preventive medicine and, and diagnostics Absolutely. and checking. And if it gets you past the issues of agoraphobia and weight room stuff and excuses to kind of push out your thing. But you're again, you're missing the human touch. You're missing the granularity of a doctor actually being there and checking you out. And I mean, it, it, it might leave a, a big gap for more artificial intelligence and machine learning to supplement the remote physician experience. Well, and, and again, you think about the quality of technology and camera and to your point around AI, there are now technologies out there that can absolutely observe how you move. This is primarily used actually in sports medicine and actually athletic training that can look at how you're moving and determine if you've got uh, structural deficits or or uh, or things that need to be fixed, and by applying the AI to the to the movement, just it's pretty interesting. We've worked with some companies that have done some things along those lines, and as you think about what that could mean for a patient rehabbing at home and being able to do, you know, being able to monitor multiple patients at once, could be a really compelling opportunity. And to the original conversation, a way to take some real to drive some real efficiency and better outcomes into the system. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Sam Handler. He's a managing director at the investment bank, Harris Williams, where he leads the firm's healthcare IT practice, which is the focus of today's conversation. Earlier, we spoke with venture capitalist Bujan Salahizadeh, Dr. Salahizadeh. Uh, Sam, I have to ask you, uh, in regards to the perennial question that's been hounding man in, in cancer, and there's been hope in recent years with the huge strides in genetic testings and the 23andMe that we are on the brink of technologies that could indicate what is ahead or maybe a, a family predisposition to colorectal cancer or pancreatic cancer, which we know is so deadly, but often detected too late in the game. Uh, do you, have, you, have you seen anything that's kind of close to a killer app in that respect that can get to the holy grail of a small saliva or a blood test? I mean, Theranos head fake aside, 
something that's actually showing promise. You know, Robin, that that's candidly a little far outside my area of expertise, I think. Uh, but what I would tell you is the amount of healthcare data that we are producing every day at this point is dwarfs what we were producing even just three years ago. And with that, we've spent all of this money as a country to develop the EMR and I, 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 uh, electronic medical records. So think of companies that help your doctor track your, track your care. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a tremendous amount of information that goes into that. What we liken the, and this was all came out of the 2009 uh, Recovery Act, which was there was a massive the 18, 19 billion dollars of stimulus and incentive put into place to encourage healthcare providers to adopt electronic medical records. And that, in many respects, would liken that to the analogy I always use in talking about that. It was that was like building the interstate highway system in the 50s. Wow. In the US. And that we've now done that in the US healthcare system. And that gives us a tremendous amount of data. But it's not just the incident of care that ultimately informs people's clinical outcome or, or where things are happening. The ability to then integrate things that are known as social determinants of health mm. is an incredibly important and actually, in some respects, is believed to have more impact on your, on your clinical outcome than, your, than the actual care you're receiving. Give me, give now, me an example. Give me an example. I was struck when we were sitting for our you know, last faithful breakfast in 2019 that you told me so much is determined by whether you can get up from a chair across the room and walk across to another chair just on your own volition. Tell us some other sure. indicators or, or things that you've kind of learned or, or, or functions of data mining. Yeah. So when, when, you, when you think about, you know, again, getting back to these social determinants of health here, one of, yeah, as, as we've always talked about, right, they're the 5% of the patients that drive 50% of the cost in the healthcare system. And where people are struggling to keep up with their treatment regimens. So, you know, you talked about going to CVS to pick up a prescription. What if, what if you're not comfortable driving? What if you're not able to go get your prescription? And you take, you take what could be a very treatable condition into a massive, urgent issue. So access to the appropriate, you know, diet items, right? Or, you know, if part of your diet plan with your physician is to eat more vegetables. And certainly that's, you know, that's all, that's, that's, that's my physician's plan along with my wife's for me, but we live near three supermarkets that have fresh produce. And there are, you know, a number of people, a number of individuals in this country who don't have that kind of access. And so that's what we, when we talk about social determinants of health, it means those kinds of things. Sam, do you do you stay up at night thinking about Amazon, which is kind of again the everything store, not just a retailer, but a cloud company, a disruptor of all things, and Amazon Prime being its killer app, this gigantic membership thing that that has a tremendous stickiness with Amazon Prime users, and it's been suggested for years that the instant that they go in truly into pharmaceuticals or potentially at some point even some versions of of, of healthcare. Uh, that that could disrupt the entire sector. I mean, they love to see areas where there's waste. And you talk about a third going to waste and shrinkage and admin. Do you think it's a plausible threat? I mean, after all, the company is worth more than one and a half trillion dollars. Indeed. Look, it's in any industry, you always have to be worried about what are the potential threats from 
an Amazon, an Apple, you know, a Google? Are there ways that those types of companies can fundamentally disrupt an industry? I would tell you that healthcare in general, but healthcare IT specifically, has generally proven to be fairly insulated from larger technology companies coming in and successfully disrupting the industry in a way that you might have seen with, you know, Amazon and bookstores. Well, close us out, Sam. I mean, in the wake of the pandemic, hopefully we're past the worst of this with nearly 600,000 deaths in the United States and at least half of adults vaccinated now. And that itself is kind of a Manhattan project that the speed with which these vaccines came out. Are there is there going to be a a, a kind of a recency overhang where a lot of these companies are going to be pitching uh, pandemic centric ideas to you, whether it's personal protective equipment or testing equipment or uh, ways of suggesting uh, flare ups or hotspots regionally? Or do you think this is going to be in the rearview mirror? No, look, I, I think in many respects, COVID is going to fundamentally alter how we how we think about the industry it, it is and it has to but but in many respects the the themes we we've been talking about really preceded the pandemic and if anything really get will be accelerated by them so as again as we think about the the core themes that we're focused on it's the consumerization of healthcare it's this massive need for healthcare providers in particular, but really across the industry, to invest in tools that enable operational optimization, better supply chains, more efficient scheduling, things like that. And this this overall move towards a value-based care, an increasingly value-based care environment, all with the notion that despite the EMR effectively operating like the interstate highway system, it's not the it's not the panacea or the end all be all for the for the healthcare system. And so I think there are a number of very, very innovative companies out there that are really poised to help truly shift how healthcare is not just delivered, but overall experienced in the, in this country. And you know, it leaves us very, you know, I certainly from my perspective, very optimistic about the opportunity for technology companies focused on the healthcare industry to, to help reshape the industry in a fundamental way. Full disclosure, you were listening to Sam Hendler. He's uh, Managing Director at the investment bank Harris Williams, where he leads the firm's healthcare technology practice. Sir, Sam, you're always welcome on this show. Thanks, Robin. Appreciate you having me and always good to always good to talk with you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. Full disclosure podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and If you feel so inclined, recommend the show to others. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FullDRadio. A warm hello to our radio listeners in Arlington, Virginia, in Washington, D.C., Ventura, California, and Buncombe County, North Carolina. Message me if you'd like to have this show on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.